Welcome to Verse by Verse Fellowship. This is our third service tonight. We're going to be getting into the second chapter of Matthew tonight, as you know, if you've been following with us. But before we go there, I just wanted to talk a little bit with you for a moment about culture, about the church culture. You know, as I said, this is our third service, right? So we're three weeks into meeting as a church, kind of looking around this room and seeing how many people are here tonight, plus what we've seen in the last two weeks. We've had maybe, I don't know, 350 people total. For a church that was announced in the early part of November... And then started meeting by the end of January, and here we are at the three-month point from our announcement date, and we are already meeting regularly and have a, a pretty good group of people every week. I just I want to mention that because if you're sitting here now and you're, you're just new to this, you know, you're feeling new to it, well, join the club. This is new to me. You know, for the last 10 years, I pastored a church where I knew everybody in the room. Uh, I could name everybody. You know, I had spent time with all of them. And you know, it was a family atmosphere. It felt like family. And I'm sure whatever church you've been a part of over the last 10 years, wherever that was, or churches, you had the same experience at some point, I hope. And so for all of us, this is new. There's no one in here that doesn't feel like this is a bit new. And, you know, you're not sure quite what's coming. And you don't know whether you want to stick around, maybe. Or you know you do, but you don't know how to get involved. There's all of that feeling in the room. And that's just normal. That's absolutely what happens with a new gathering of anything. As a result, there's no culture yet. I mean, we have the culture of some basics that tie all the believers in the body of Christ together. But in a more personal sense, we don't have our own culture yet. That has to take time. There's no way to rush that. I've had people who are involved in church planning tell me that it's crazy how fast we stood this church up. There's, there's books on how to do church planning, and they all tell you it takes, you know, eight months, ten months, twelve months of planning. When I say them, it took three months, they look at you like you're crazy. How did you do that? And it's obviously a God thing. But there are some things you cannot rush. They just can't be rushed. And one of those is culture. And so if you're sitting here tonight with me and you're thinking, I don't really know what this place is about. I don't feel what it's about yet. It doesn't feel like home yet. Well, that's absolutely the way it should feel. And the fix for that, the solution for that is also in your hands. Because you guys will develop the culture of this church. You define it over time with your friends, with your family, with whoever you get to know here. It's how you make the culture here with us that forms what it is this church will be. And so if you have aspirations for what you want out of church and you're hoping that this is the place that will offer you what you've always been missing, if that's part of why you're here, well, it's in your hands to create that very thing that you're saying you wish you had in church. The one thing you don't have direct control over is what I do up here. But if you've been around even a day, you know what I do. I'm not going to stop doing that. That's what I do. I teach the Bible. So we're going to do that here routinely. That's part of who we are as a culture, obviously. But everything else is in, is in flux. And I want to encourage you tonight to be asking yourself whether God has placed you here for a season or for a, a, an indefinite period of time. And in, in that case, what is he asking you to do here? What is your role? And as we all explore that question and come to an answer, the culture will come out of that. And I'm excited for what that might be. You know, there aren't enough churches, in my opinion, who teach the Bible properly and make it the center of their ministry. There are some, certainly, but there aren't enough. There can always be more. And that's what we want to be. But then after that, what are we about? What is it we're going to really do for the city of San Antonio? How does God want to use this body? That's, that is not yet known. And uh, I encourage you all to be a part of that with us, to get involved. In the coming weeks, we'll start looking for opportunity to bring this church together in a fellowshipping opportunity where we can actually spend time. You know, we're real limited by the fact that we're in this facility. Thankful that we are for having it. It still is a limit because we can only be here one night a week. But as we find ways to overcome that limitation and get together, 
I'm sure that a lot of what you're looking for in church will materialize out of that, uh, those opportunities to gather. So just hold on. Keep coming. Bring your friends. Bring family. Let's let that, that percolate here for a while. Let's get that momentum going as God appoints. And then let's see what God does with our culture from there. All right. And I can promise you we're all working very hard to get to a permanent facility where we can make more of our time together, get on a different night, a different morning, <laughs> on a day of the week that's more traditional. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for that day. But let's just let's just do what God's called us to do right now in the meantime. All right. Thank you for that. I hope you uh, don't mind that little bit of announcement. Let me pray once more as we go into the teaching this evening. Dear Father, we are thankful that you have brought us together, that you're forming this community. It's your community. It's your church. And a lot of us don't know each other yet, Father, not in human terms, but we're already brothers and sisters in the, in the faith we have in you. So, Father, just give us opportunity to get to know one another better in the, in the weeks that follow. And as we do, uh, Father, I pray that you show each of us our role and our place in this body. I know, Father, you brought a collection of spiritual gifts into this room because all of what we need is here. Uh, we just want to discover each gift and use it to its utmost and all of it for your glory. And let us be an effective tool in your hands, Father, for the sake of the kingdom here in San Antonio. And part of that we know, Father, is learning at your feet so that we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, teach us tonight through your word, preparing us for what you have ahead of us in this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys heard the story about the Texas nativity scene? There's a small Texas town that had one of those nativity scenes in the town square that everybody does, you know. It looked just like you'd expect. It had the baby in the cradle, it had the animals, it had the wise men, the whole routine. But the wise men in this case were all wearing fireman outfits and a fireman's hat. And there was a visitor who came through the town and he saw this and he asked one of the locals why all the wise men were dressed like firemen. And the, the Texan replied, well, because the Bible says that the wise men came from afar. It's my best Texas accent. It's an old joke, but did you know it's biblically correct? Uh, so when we move into chapter 2 tonight, we're looking at that scene, that nativity scene. But what we're going to find, unfortunately, is the nativity scenes that we all know so well. Most of them are wrong. They're plain wrong. And so we're going to learn that from the scriptures along with some other more important things tonight. We're going to be looking at those firemen, wise men, and we're going to be looking at some of the other details of Jesus' birth as Matthew records them. But here's the funny thing. What we're not going to study, because it's not in Matthew's gospel, is Jesus' actual birth. He just notes it in passing and then moves on to some other things. So we're going to do that as well. We're going to follow what Matthew gives us. And in particular, Matthew focuses on the effect of Jesus' arrival on two very different audiences in that day, a Jewish king and Gentile magicians. And they're the focus of Matthew's account. So let's start reading in Matthew chapter 2. And I know this is a story you know pretty well, or maybe you think you know pretty well. Let's see what we find. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time 
the star appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I may too come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, a story we all know so well, right? And Matthew just mentions briefly at the beginning the birth of Jesus. Actually, he mentions it at the end of chapter 1. And then he just moves on. And what we learn in the start of what he gives us in chapter 2 are two things. He notes when and where Jesus was born. Now, the where of this is a place that we know well. It's the old little town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is about six miles from Jerusalem as the crow flies. You can probably walk it in about two hours. Today, it's about a 20-minute drive. It's actually located now in the Palestinian-controlled area of the West Bank. Bethlehem, it means a house of bread. You probably knew that. Best known as the hometown of King David before Jesus was born there. And that connection is no accident, obviously. As we learned in last week's study, Matthew has two main ideas or themes that he's presenting in his gospel. And the first of those is that Jesus is the eternal king, that fulfillment of the promise God gave to David that there would be a man in the line of David to rule the kingdom. And secondly, the other theme is that Jesus is also the Savior to bless all nations, which is the promise that God gave to Abraham. So he's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. So to help us recognize that when the Messiah arrived, we'd know who he was, God told us through the prophets centuries earlier that that Messiah would be born in David's hometown. And that's the prophecy out of Micah that you see quoted here in the verses we read. Herod asked his own advisors, because he doesn't know the scriptures, So he asked his own advisors, where do they say that the Messiah is going to be born? His advisors say, oh, Bethlehem. And then Matthew gives us the actual verse out of Micah, where that quote or where that information comes from. Micah says to Bethlehem, you know, you're a little town. You're a nothing insignificant place, but you're going to have the great honor of bringing forth the eternal ruler of Israel someday. Now, Micah wrote those words to Israel 700 years before Jesus was born. And so for centuries after Micah wrote those things, the rabbis of Israel were saying, and they were teaching everyone, Bethlehem would be the place we will see a Messiah come from. And so now you see Matthew boldly proclaiming Jesus fulfills that prophecy. But how do the Magi know that? How would the Magi have known to come looking for Jesus in this place or to know about Jesus at all? That's one of the questions we're going to answer tonight. Before we do that, I want you to notice the second thing that Matthew introduces us with. He did place and he did time. And the time will get us closer to the answers about our Magi. He notes that Jesus was born in the days of Herod. Now, he's referring to Herod the Great. This is a man who was a ruthless tyrant. He ruled Judea for about 37 years. He died in 4 BC. And at this point, you and I need to understand a little bit of history about this man in order to appreciate Matthew's account of what happens in this scene. The area that we know of Israel today, in in this day, it was called Judea. It ranged from Syria in the north down to Egypt in the south, that strip of land on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. That entire region was conquered by the Romans in about 63 B.C. So in 63 B.C., they roll into town, they take it over. After they controlled that territory, they allowed some of the previous Jews who had been ruling in that area, some of the rulers of that region, to continue governing after the Romans had come in. But they were under Roman authority at that point. And those rulers, most of them were not actually Jewish, they were Idumeans. And the term Idumean means someone who is descended from the Edomites, who came from Esau. Remember, Esau was Jacob's brother. He sold his birthright to Jacob. So the the family line of Esau became Edomites. And out of the Edomites, you find Idumeans. And the reason they have a special name is because these were Edomites who practiced Judaism. 
They adopted Judaism. They converted, if you will, to Judaism. So they claimed to be Jewish. But that didn't fool the true Jew. The true Jewish people knew the difference, right? They understood that only Jews only descended from Jacob. They didn't descend from Esau. So the Jewish people despised the Idumeans, and they despised these rulers who had been set over them by the Roman authorities. But the Romans, you know, they're Gentiles. They don't know the difference between a Jew and an Idumean, and they couldn't care less anyway. So they took these people who claimed to be Jew and put them in charge of the Jewish people. And that group of people, the Idumeans, ruled from about 63 B.C. on. They forced the Jewish people to accept their rule, and in 39 B.C., the Roman Senate took the ultimate step of picking one of those people, one of those Idumeans, and named that guy king over all Judea, and his name was Herod. And in that way, he became king of the Jews. The history books record him as Herod the Great because he was responsible for a lot of impressive building projects during his time, including the massive second temple that was the temple of Jesus' day. Herod built that. But we should have called him something else. His name should have been Herod the Paranoid. And I'm serious, because he lived in constant fear that the Jews were going to overthrow him because they knew how much they hated him. He built these massive fortresses. One of them is Masada, which you may have seen in movies or maybe you've been there. And he built these things to protect himself just so that he wouldn't get killed or overthrown by his own subjects. And he was so paranoid, he put people to death all the time thinking they were going to take his job, including a lot of his own family. He killed several of his own children because he was worried they might take over. He was so bad, and this is my favorite story about the guy, as he was approaching death himself, he ordered that a large group of prominent, distinguished, very loved men from all over Judea would be arrested and thrown in jail. And he commanded that on the occasion of his death, all of those guys were to be executed as well. And he was so hated for his tyrannical rule that he knew that when he died, the Jews of Judea were not going to mourn him. They were going to be celebrating. So to ensure that the entire nation would be in mourning when he died, he commanded that all those eyes would be executed when he died. Now, thankfully, his successors decided not to carry out his orders after he died, and they let all those guys go. But that gives you a little window into the mind of this, of this crazy guy, this evil guy. So let's go back to the text. You have Matthew telling us that Jesus was born in the days of this guy's reign, in the days of Herod, which means Herod's still alive at the time that Jesus is born. And we know Herod died in 4 BC. And if you do a careful review of the Gospels and you look at historical records and so on, you come to around 5, between 5 and 4 BC is the date of Jesus' birth. Because we know he had to be alive when Herod was still alive. So Matthew's telling us this in a very ironic sense. He's saying the king of the Jews was born during the reign of the king of the Jews. But only a false king, obviously. Notice how Matthew repeats Herod's title there in verse 3 again, like you might have forgotten since verse 1. He's just trying to emphasize this contrast because it's all about this issue. This becomes a major point of contention in Matthew's story, this contention of who is the true king of the Jews. And Herod receives these, these visitors on this day, these magi, They come to him and they say, we're in town because we're here to visit the king of the Jews. Uh, Isn't that a great moment? Can you imagine the expression on Herod's face when he heard them come to him and ask, we're here to see the king of the Jews. Do you know where we can find this guy? These guys had some nerve, didn't they? Coming to ask Herod where they could find the king of the Jews. Remember, Herod lived his entire life paranoid that there would be a time when someone else would come and take his throne. So I think it's pretty safe to say that when Herod heard this from these guys, he wasn't very pleased with what he was hearing, right? Matthew says these visitors are magi. Now that's a name for a very specific kind of magician who was a sorcerer 
in the court of Babylon for the king of Babylon. That's present-day Iraq. And Magi were astrologers. They served in the court of the king. They studied the stars. They studied ancient wisdom. Uh, We can trace them all the way back to at least 600 B.C. because one of their group is the prophet Daniel. Daniel was one of the Magi after he was taken into Babylon. We'll talk more about him here in a minute. Matthew says these particular Magi came from the east. You notice that? Well, that would confirm that they're coming from Mesopotamia, from Babylon. Which means, if you look at the map, these guys walked about 700 miles to come see Jesus. Which is like walking from here to Kansas City, Missouri. Which I don't recommend you doing just to prove me wrong, but it's about that far. So why did these guys walk this far just to find Jesus? Herod asked them that very question, basically. And they tell Herod, well, it's because we saw this star appeared while we were in the east in Babylon. And somehow these guys knew that the appearance of a special star was a sign to them that the Messiah had been born in Judea. And that was enough for them to get on the road and come worship him. The answer they give Herod just raises a whole bunch of new questions, doesn't it? Like, how did they know about a coming Messiah? I mean, they're not Jewish. Uh, How did they come to understand that a star in the sky means a baby's been born in Judea? How did they know that? And why, for that matter, would Gentiles, much less Eastern astrologers, have any interest in worshiping such a guy? None of this makes any sense, does it? To get the answers, though, you have to start looking at some of the details of the story a little more carefully. And it starts in verse 2. You notice I said the star appeared in the east. Conventional thinking tells you that the star moved from the east to the west, leading them to Judea. But that's not true. The text doesn't say that. The text just says the star appeared in the east. And just by that one sighting, they knew to start their journey to Judea. They then traveled to Judea without any star leading them. They knew how to get to Judea. It wasn't like it was a mystery location. They walked or rode their camels to Judea, and they went into Jerusalem, not knowing any more than that. They only knew the words that Daniel wrote. That is, the words that Daniel had given them when Daniel was there amongst them. They had not read the words of Micah. They did not know that the birthplace would be Bethlehem. So they don't know where in Judea they're going to find this king. So what do you do when you know it's in Judea, but you don't know where else to go? Where do you go looking for a king? You go to the palace. So they go to the king, Herod, and they assume that naturally this king's going to know where his successor is. The fact that these guys go to Herod is our best evidence that they were not being guided by a star at all, because the star doesn't guide them to Herod. In fact, we don't see any mention of a guiding star until you get down to verse 9. And that's when they come out from Herod and the star reappears at that point, leading them to Bethlehem. And in verse 10, it says they rejoiced over the fact that they got the star back. So it seems as though the star appeared once. That's the trigger. Go to Judea. They go to Judea and then they get the second sighting of the star that leads them to Jesus. So obviously this is no ordinary star. I know there's a lot of theory out there about what this star might have been, and I'm not here to refute or or, uh, agree with any of it necessarily. I'm just telling you that's not a star. You know, a a ball of of fire millions of miles away from us, it doesn't move like this. This is not a normal star. I don't think it's a star at all. The only reasonable explanation for a bright light that moves over the Son of God is that it's the Shekinah glory of God. This is the Shekinah glory of God. That's the name we have for that brightness that accompanies the glory of God in the Bible. The last time anyone on earth witnessed the Shekinah glory of God was when it departed from the temple of Jerusalem shortly before Babylon destroyed that city in about 590, 587 B.C. So you can read about that moment in the book of Ezekiel. 
So for centuries before that moment, God's glory had occupied the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle and then later in the temple. But then, because of Israel's sin, that glory departed. God withdrew His glory from the temple. And then for 600 years after that, God's glory was nowhere on the earth. It was not present in the temple. It wasn't present anywhere. So think about this. Isn't it interesting that the Lord removed His glory from Israel on the occasion of the Babylonian destruction of the city, and now, 600 years later, that same glory is returning, being accompanied by Babylonian magis. It's almost as if God is saying to Israel, I ended my time of exile with you. The Babylonians coming was my signal that I'm gone, and the Babylonians coming back to you is my signal that I'm back. I'm back now, though, in a very different way. The glory of God's about to appear in a way that it's never appeared on earth before, in the form of man. So this explains how they found Christ, that is, the star leading them there. But then back to the first question, how do they know to follow the star at all? How do they even know to be looking for a star? Why did they have any interest in the Messiah? Well, this is where we go back to Daniel. Remember I said these men were astrologers and they were employed in Babylon. And their job was to serve the Babylonian court with predictions, prophecy, looking at the stars and the like. They were part of a distinguished brotherhood. As I mentioned, one of them was the prophet Daniel. Daniel became a Magi because he was taken captive as a young boy out of Jerusalem when the Babylonians captured that city in about 600 B.C. And God gave Daniel the ability to to interpret prophetic dreams so that he could talk to the king of Babylon, which is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, As a result, Daniel took what he learned from those prophetic dreams and from what God gave him, and he wrote it in a book. That's the book of Daniel we have in the Bible now. And in chapter 9 of Daniel's book, he specifically gives us the year that the Messiah would arrive. The actual specific year is given to us in the Bible. And what's really interesting about chapter 9 of Daniel is it's not written in Hebrew. Daniel chose to write that chapter in Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians. So, for nearly 600 years, the Babylonian astrologers had a book given to them by Daniel, written in their own language, which they could read, which predicted the precise year for the arrival of the Jewish Messiah in Judea. And Daniel tells us in his own book that he eventually became the leader of all the Babylonian magi. He was the chief magi in his day. And while he was in charge, we can naturally assume that Daniel was teaching his fellow astrologers that they should anticipate the arrival of the Messiah in that appointed year. And we know he would have worshipped Jehovah God before them, the God of Israel. So it's reasonable to assume that the Gentile Magi that knew Daniel and those that came afterward all understood the power of Israel's God and the promise he had made to save them through this Messiah who would come and the date to look for him, or at least the year to look for that Messiah. So as that year approached, 600 years later, those astrologers began looking at the sky for a sign, something that would tell them that Daniel was right. And then that mysterious star, that glory of God star, appears in the sky, and that's all they needed. And they were on their way to Judea. They journeyed to find the king. All right, so back to Herod. He's standing there with these guys. He hears their story, finds out about the star, and he asks them, So tell me, when did that star first appear? Now, what he's trying to do, obviously, is calculate how long it's been since that star appeared so that he can guess the age of this child that's out there threatening his reign as king. Now, Matthew doesn't say anything about what the answer from the Magi was to that question of how long. But when you just use basic logic, given how far they had to travel and how fast that would have been, how slow that would have been, we have to assume the star must have appeared almost a year or maybe longer from this time. 
So if you've always imagined the Magi visiting Jesus while he's still in the manger on the night of his birth, sorry to break it to you, but that's not true. That's not accurate. They likely arrived a year or more after his birth based on the timing of what it would take for them to get there. And in verse 3, Matthew says, Herod was troubled as he hears the news of this king, and so he makes all of Israel feel troubled as well. So to misquote an old saying, king ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Only it's usually said with mama in that, right? Mama ain't happy, nobody happy. So you can understand why a paranoid king found the birth of another king, of a rival king, to be something troubling to him, right? But Herod supposedly practiced Judaism. So, you know, we could ask, why didn't he get excited to embrace the coming king as well? Why didn't he want a Messiah? He's Jewish, or so he thinks. Because you've got Gentiles from the land of Israel's enemies willing to come embrace the Jewish king. Well, why wouldn't the, the so-called Jew of Judea do it? Well, the simple answer is, Herod was more interested in maintaining his position of power on earth than in serving the living God. He had his priorities in the wrong place. He valued temporary happiness in this role as king over an eternity of happiness with God. That's what he did. He didn't want another king, and he's not alone, unfortunately. Because year after year, every time Christmas rolls around in the world, the world gets to hear this exact same message that Herod heard. Hey, a king's been born in Bethlehem the ruler of the world, come to free men from their sins. It's the same thing that the Magi were saying. But year after year, there's a whole bunch of people that react the same way Herod did. Instead of asking, where do I find this Jesus? Instead, they're troubled. They're troubled like Herod was, even at the mention of his name. And for them, this good news story is nothing but bad news. In fact, we've reached the point where now you can get into trouble if you say Merry Christmas to somebody, right? Nobody wants to hear this anymore. The world is troubled for the same reason that I think Herod was troubled, because the intrusion of God into our little world troubles the ungodly, and it makes disobedient hearts feel vulnerable. That's the effect of the message of the gospel initially. It pricks your conscience. It reminds us that God's not ambivalent about how we live, and that one day you have to give an account before that Creator. You know That comes back to your mind when someone tells you that God is coming to this world to be king. They kind of react to the news of Jesus coming into the world the same way a child reacts who's got his hands in the cookie jar and he looks over to see mom right at that moment, right? It's that sense that the the world hates the suggestion that there's someone or something that has the power to judge their choices and hold them accountable for what they choose to do. So rather than submitting to that authority, what they would rather do is just silence it. They don't want to know about it. They don't want to put it away. I mean, what Herod tried to do is kill Jesus. We'll learn that next week. What the world wants to do is just shut us up. Now, in Herod's case, he knew there could only be one king at one time, right? The only way a new king was going to rule in Judea is if the current king stepped down. So he understood the jeopardy. And so when he says to the Magi, tell me where this guy is, I'd like to go worship him. We know that's a lie. He's not prepared to give up his throne. He wasn't going to give up anything. I mean, he wasn't even going to give up his heart, much less his throne. And I think that's exactly what's at stake in this story for most people. You're telling people, when you tell them about Jesus, you're telling people there's a new king in town. And you're asking them, are you willing to worship him? Or are you looking for ways to deny him access to his throne in your life? That's the trouble that's in most people's hearts. Have you made a place for Christ in your heart as Savior? Or are you pushing away like Herod did? If you and I could speak to Herod right now, and I hope you know where he is because I know. If you could speak to him right now, he would tell you that he had wished that he had welcomed the king when he arrived. Herod would tell you that the glory that he enjoyed during the earthly rule he had was nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ in the rule he will know in the eternal. 
And I'm sure he would plead with every one of us not to push the Messiah away as he did. I assure you of that. Herod's worry over Jesus' arrival reminds us of Matthew's first theme again. Remember, Jesus, the eternal king, the one who came to fulfill the promise to David. This is the theme. And among those magi, you see the reminder of that second theme. Because here you have Jesus, the savior of all nations, appealing to a bunch of Gentiles who've traveled a long distance to see him. The irony is, you got Gentiles making this huge effort to go find a Jewish Messiah while the Jewish king over Judea wants to kill him. It's a unique kind of situation. So they came down to bow before him, it says, willing to do what Jesus' own people weren't willing to do for the most part, walking through a door that God had opened. I want to move on, but I want to move on with one last thought. The door that we're talking about here, this opening for the Gentiles, that hasn't closed. You know that. And the fact that this room is all full of Gentiles is proof of that. You don't have to walk 700 miles to access it, though. Paul says in, the, in Romans, you just have to open your mouth. It's near you. It's in your mouth. The confession that saves you, the, the heart that believes. Doing so is all that's required. That's what the Bible tells us to do if we have faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look at what the Magi's did because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That starts in verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Again, very well-known part of the story, coming and seeing Jesus, giving him three gifts. They're led by the star, we're told earlier, to come to this place to know where to go. But notice where they find Jesus in verse 11. After coming, it says, into the house. Did you notice that? He's not in a manger anymore. And of course, that just makes sense. This is over a year later. They didn't live in a manger. They just had a baby in a manger. They moved on from there. And they must have found a home, rented a place. Maybe a family member gave them a place to stay. And so now they're living in a home. They've been there for a while. Which, by the way, this tells you just how wrong your nativity scene is, right? The nativity scenes have shepherds and they have magi. And those two characters never cross paths in the story of Jesus. The shepherds were there a year earlier. So we've just taken a whole bunch of chapters, mashed them together and made a pretty scene. But it's okay. Don't let me get you down. You can do it again next year. It's fine. Everybody's sitting around thinking, how am I going to do with my nativity scene now? I don't know what to do with it. You remember the story of Jesus from Luke's gospel, right? They were from Nazareth. His parents were from Nazareth. But they came to Bethlehem because there was a census being taken in the Roman Empire. And the census required that you return to your ancestral home to be counted there. And Joseph's family was from Bethlehem. So Joseph took Mary while she was pregnant back there. And when they get there, they have the baby. And now they've stayed there for at least a year. And they're probably going to stay there a little longer. Which is really interesting because somehow the Lord restrained that family from going back to Nazareth long enough that it gave time for the Magi who started when they saw the star to find Jesus when they came looking for him. Because if he'd gone back to Nazareth, nobody would have known where he was. Because the Bible didn't say anything about where to find him after he leaves Bethlehem. Isn't that great? I love that detail because it shows you that God's willing to do anything to make sure that those who are seeking him will find him. That you're going to find him, right? God summoned these guys by his star, but he made sure that his son stayed in Bethlehem long enough for them to get there and see him. I think he's doing that for everybody, at least in a sense. He puts a call on someone's heart to know him, to worship him. But you don't have to worry you're going to miss him in in some sense, right? Because if he's called you to find him, you're going to find him. He's going to make sure that you find him. And by finding him in our case, we mean coming to a knowledge of him, finding someone who can explain him to you, finding the gospel, 
But it's the same thing in the end, coming to know Him. You can't find Him on your own. He reveals Himself to us, but as He does that, He makes sure that He gets through. No one's going to miss Him in that sense. So then in verse 11, and I love this scene. I hope you'll walk into this scene in your mind with me because it's just such, a, just such an incredible moment. You have these men finally reaching to this child, getting to Him after how many weeks or months of walking and riding. They find Him, and after 600 years of waiting for Him, And they fall down and they worship Him. And this had to have been an incredibly just bizarre scene for anyone who was watching it, including Jesus' parents. Because you have to understand, friends, the Magi, these were some impressive dudes. These are not just like guys in robes walking around. The very fact that Herod was willing to grant these guys an audience with the king and that he did not kill them when they said they were here to worship another king, the fact that that scene could happen at all tells you how much power and prestige these guys had. And they were impressive, wealthy, powerful guys, and they dressed like it too. These guys would have had like the majestic clothing of a king on. Big hats, the whole nine yards. They would have walked in looking like that. So I want you to imagine these guys arriving at a modest Bethlehem home with all of that splendor and regalia after having traveled 700 miles to see a king, whatever it was, six, 700 miles, and they reverently walk in and they bow down before a toddler rolling around babbling on a dirt floor. I mean, that's literally what happened. Unless he's in a high chair. I mean, he's, he's, he's one years old. What is he doing, right? Maybe he's walking. This thing had to have just been an absolutely bizarre moment. I mean, even though you understand it, and maybe Mary and Joseph did as well, it doesn't change the fact that the scene would have been just, just would have knocked you down, right? This is the first recorded moment in history of a Gentile worshiping the person of Jesus. And the fact that they're in this moment doesn't change the reality that they faced exactly the same test that every single one of us and every single Gentile of history, has, and Jew for that matter, has ever faced when they've come to know Jesus. Their task was exactly the same as ours. They had to be willing to accept on faith that this baby was the king of the world, the intercessor for their needs before God Almighty, their Savior. Now, you and I look at faith this way. We think faith is believing in the Jesus we haven't seen yet. You know what? Is that harder or easier than believing that a toddler is the king of the universe? I mean, you see the challenge they had before them? That sight actually was an impediment to faith in this case. They had to look past the circumstances to understand something about what God was capable of doing. These men had no more proof that Jesus was Messiah than you and I do. I mean, they had the word of God from Daniel that was telling them all along that there would be a Messiah and how to find him. Yeah, but you got that too. They had the glory of God in the form of that star pointing them the way. Okay, but the Bible says you have the spirit of God leading you to Jesus. So who has more? And like us, when that time came for them to enter that little house and bow down to worship this little baby, that that was a step of faith, friends. I have to tell you, that had to have been a step of faith for them. I almost wish I could see their expression because I know they had faith, but, you know, people are still people. When they first walked in and they see what they're here to worship, you wonder what they were looking at each other like, is this right? Who go, You go first, you know? That's just people. That's what we all think, right? Jesus was sitting not on a throne, but on diapers. He he was not doing miracles. He was not floating, you know. He was he was not speaking words of wisdom. He was babbling. He wasn't surrounded by angels. He did not have the little halo that you see in the photos. 
He didn't have a court of worshipers there. He was probably drooling. He probably needed his diapers changed for all we know. And that's not heretical to say that. He was fully man. He was doing what babies do. And nevertheless, what the scripture says is they were moved in the moment to fall down and bow and worship this baby for who he was. That faith that they had brought them six, seven hundred miles, but it didn't stop there. That same faith gave them the courage to confront Herod, a man who was by then long known for his despotic behavior. But they went before him and asked for the real king. And it was the same faith that caused them to humble themselves before a young child. And as they worshiped the Lord, it says they moved to then giving him gifts, which was the custom, by the way, for the day when a dignitary from a foreign land would come and visit a king. You always paid your respects by offering that king some gift that was sort of commensurate with their authority and their, and their magnificence as a king. You wanted to honor them with that gift. So you had to give them something that was important, sort of worthy of them, you know? Well, okay, in this case, what do you get for the guy who's got everything? Because literally Jesus has got everything, right? God owns the world. Everything is his. So in truth, you cannot give God anything valuable enough to equal his glory, can you? That's kind of a tough problem, isn't it? You guys, you think it's got, you got it hard on Mother's Day or, or Valentine's Day. I mean, this is, this is the ultimate gift-giving problem. What do I get Jesus? What do I get God? Well, the only thing you can do under those circumstances is you've got to get him gifts that symbolize his glory and his honor because you really can't match it with anything physical. So Matthew says that the Magi's bring these three different types of gifts to the Christ child. And, and here again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow up your nativity scene for you, I'm afraid, because we look at this and we think, oh, three gifts, there must have been three Magi. But if you're careful, you notice it never tells you how many Magi there were. The only thing we know from the scripture is that there was more than one because the text refers to Magi as they, plural. But you know what? There could have been two. There could have been three. There could have been seven. There could have been 20. There could have been a hundred. And frankly, I like to imagine a hundred magi crammed into Mary's little room. I think that's actually the scene that, that I love more than any. All right. So let's look at the gifts real quickly. The first of those is gold. And obviously gold is valuable. It's very valuable then, just like it is now. We don't know how much gold they gave Jesus, but even a little bit would have been very precious. One Roman gold coin of the day, a common coin of gold made in that day, it's called an arius. A Roman arius was worth, in weight, about three months' salary for a centurion, a working man, a laborer of that day. In terms of weight, it'd be worth about $3,300 today. $3,300 in one little coin. They gave him a bag of coins. That's a lot of money. So we can probably assume that Jesus' family received a considerable amount of wealth just in the gold at that moment. But like I've already said, God already owns everything. So it's not like Jesus needed the money. I mean, if you guys know the stories of the gospel, there's a point later where he gets coins out of fish's mouths. It's not like he's hurting for money. So this isn't about him being made rich or being given a means of support, etc. They're not even worried about that. They're not trying to make Jesus wealthy. He's the king of the universe. They know that. What they're doing is they're demonstrating their faith in Jesus by bringing him a gift that symbolizes his kingship. Because kings and gold are always seen together in history. That's a symbol of kingship. It's gold. So they're saying, you're my king. Here's gold as evidence of my faith in you. And then the second type of gift. It's a, a valuable spice called frankincense. It's a resin. It's produced from the sap of a certain tree that you'll find in Arabia and Africa. And they'll, they'll take the sap and they'll, when it hardens, it's a, a resin and they can burn that. And when you burn that resin, it creates a really strong incense, smoky incense. It was the main ingredient in the incense that God commanded that Israel would burn on the altar of incense in the tabernacle or in the temple. So the priests would go in into the tabernacle or in the temple, 
and they'd be in the holy place and they would take the special incense that's made out of frankincense and they would put it on the altar of incense and they would burn it right before the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, which is right behind the curtain where the tabernacle was. So they didn't go in there very often, just once a year. But the other days of the year, they'd be on this side of it burning the incense. And then the smoke would go up inside the little tabernacle. And eventually it would kind of get behind the curtain, kind of work its way back into the Holy of Holies where the people couldn't go. And all of that was a symbol of, of the movement of intercessionary prayer into the place where God could receive it. So in that way, burning incense becomes a picture of our prayers and of God's intercession. Revelation 5 tells us that our prayers, the prayers of the saints, are like incense that rise up to God. And they reach God by way of an intercessor. That is Christ who brings our petitions before the Father. The Bible is clear that unless you know Christ, he does not hear your prayers. There are millions, if not billions, of sincere, pious people praying and no one's listening. Because unless Christ is your intercessor, God does not hear the prayer, Scripture tells us. So these men give Jesus frankincense. As another testimony of their faith, only in this case, what they're testifying to is they have faith in Jesus as their high priest. That is, a priest burns incense on an altar before God as a a way of interceding for man, and Jesus lives to intercede for us, so they're acknowledging him as their high priest. Finally, they give Jesus myrrh. This is about the most unlikely baby gift you'll, you'll ever get, because it's another resin spice. It also comes... From the sap of a tree. These are very sappy gifts, all of them. It's a spice, though, that's associated with death, which is why I say it's so uncommon to give as a baby gift. But it's quite expensive. It's fragrant. It's used in perfumes. Also used in the tabernacle service. But its most common use was in as an anointing oil. It was part of how you made anointing oil. Anointing oil made with myrrh was part of the way you prepared a body for burial. That's why it's associated with death. Dead bodies, as you probably know, don't smell very good. And so as a way of covering that odor for a while and of preparing the body so that you could uh, work with it before burial, they would prepare the body with spices and oil like this. And so, in fact, Jesus gets this very treatment on his body right before they put him in the tomb. So what these guys do now is they bring a symbol of his coming death, that is the myrrh, and they understand that this is the one who will die for us to sacrifice himself for our sin. And they symbolize this by giving... This gift. I mean, what kind of faith do these guys have after all? Here are these guys willing to acknowledge even now that Jesus is going to die for them while he's still a toddler. That's how much insight had been imparted upon them, either from Daniel or otherwise, that they knew who they were looking at. They understand the course of history that was before this baby. They knew he was their king. They knew he was their priest. They knew he was the sacrificial lamb that God had sent. And they gave him gifts to picture all three. Now, besides that, though, all three of these are valuable. So in the immediate moment, God used these men to make Jesus' otherwise fairly poor family temporarily very wealthy. And we're going to find out next week why Jesus' family needed to have that wealth at this time. But for now, I want you to ask yourself, do you know what these Magi's knew? Do any of us measure up to their degree of faith? But at the very least, do we all agree with what they understood? Do we all agree with what they believed? Or are we like Herod? We like that king who thought he had everything, but he actually had nothing, really. Not in the end. Because everyone in the world is either like one of those guys or the other. There's really only two choices. You're either trying to rule your own heart, or you've placed your faith in Jesus as your king. And you know that. You're either praying to Jesus as your high priest, or you're praying to yourself, or to no one. 
You're either depending on Jesus's payment for your sin or like Herod, one day you're going to pay that price for yourself. So the Magi heard the word of God. They placed their faith in that report. And that's what I'm asking for anyone in this room who hasn't yet done that to do exactly the same thing tonight. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. He's your king. He's your high priest. And he's your perfect sinless sacrifice given so that you would know God personally. You only need to confess your faith in him tonight to have all that he offers. We're going to close now in prayer. And as we do that, I'm going to remain up here for anyone who'd like to come up and talk about what they've heard tonight. I hope you'll come up if you have something on your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, that Jesus is all three of those things. That he, Father, is the king. He rules now from his seat next to you in heaven, but he'll rule one day, Father, here on this earth. And we look forward to that day and long for it when we will be with him. And Father, he is interceding for us, you tell us right now. For those of us who have lifted up our prayers in the name of Jesus, it goes before him and then to you. And you hear those prayers, Father, and we thank you for that. Mercy. And Father, He is our sacrifice. He is the one who took the pain and the suffering of death, a death we deserve for our sin, but He took it for us, Father. And He did it, Father, because He obeyed You and loved us before we knew Him. We thank You, Father, for that sacrifice, that by faith in Jesus Christ, by a confession of our belief in Him, we may obtain that salvation that is only through Him. I do pray, Father, that there may be someone tonight for whom this is, this is the news they've waited to hear. Or maybe they've heard it before, but today, Father, perhaps for the first time, it's on their heart in a new way, and they want to respond. I ask, Father, that you would give them the courage to stand up and confess Christ as they come forward at the end of the service, and that they would acknowledge you and acknowledge him so that you would acknowledge them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.